Uh, well, thank you. I, I do want to add, uh, I'm so grateful to serve alongside with the elders and the deacons, uh, grateful to, to serve Jesus with them. Let's all be praying for them as they serve our church body. Uh, like Pastor Mill said, I'm, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. Um, do you guys know what Easter eggs are? And I, I don't mean uh, like the can, like the plastic things that hold candy that somehow represent how a man rose from the dead. I don't, I don't know. That's not what I mean. I mean Easter eggs that you find like uh, in movies and TV shows or songs, even in video games, um, that are put into those stories by the designers uh, that are hidden pictures or signs or messages uh, that can be easily missed, but only like the keen observing eyes or ears will pick them up. Like for example, like Taylor Swift will put a lot of hidden messages like in her album notes, so I'm told. <laughs> But another example would be, uh, like if you've ever watched the movie The Lord of the Rings, which is 20 years old, uh, so you're welcome for that. Um, but in that first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, remember that story? There's a moment where Frodo gets stabbed by a ring wraith, and he's starting to turn into an evil ring wraith, so Strider runs into the forest and is trying to look for medicine to help him. Uh, and in the back, there's like these, just these big rocks in the forest. But if you look closer, you notice that these huge stones aren't just stones, they're actually the trolls that Bilbo Baggins turned into stone in The Hobbit. So this is like this Easter egg uh, that's just a hidden treat for those paying attention. Now, I've already lost some of you for the sermon. <laughs> 60 seconds in, and we have mentioned both Taylor Swift and Bilbo Baggins. Uh, or some of you, I have your attention more now than I've ever had before. <laughs> this is great, yeah. Uh, but the point is, these Easter eggs and these stories and songs are meant to add like a level of depth, of meaning, of purpose that the casual observer wouldn't even notice, much less appreciate. And today we're continuing our series uh, called Encountering Jesus, where we're seeing the depths of this Jesus in his interactions with different folks. And while there's so much truth and wisdom on the surface of these stories, there's so much awe-inducing and transforming power in these encounters when we see beyond the surface, when we go underneath to what can be so easily missed in a casual, quick reading. And often, if we just stay on the surface of these stories, we actually miss the entire point of the encounter with Jesus. So this morning, we're going to go below the surface to one of the least taught on moments in the life of Jesus. It's a moment that Jesus invited a select few people to witness a, a special, fuller view of who he truly was. It was an encounter that left those who witnessed it with actually more questions than answers. But ultimately, it was meant to give their unsteady hearts an unshakable hope when they finally understood what it all meant. The moment I'm speaking of is often referred to as the transfiguration. It's an encounter with Jesus that Peter, James, and John entered into where Jesus pulled back the veil of his glory as true greatness and showed those disciples a side of himself that they would need to remember when the road ahead got rough. Turn to the Gospel of Mark if you haven't already, chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 10. And you can follow along as I read about this encounter with Jesus we call the Transfiguration. And in it, we'll dive beneath the surface to see in Jesus' Transfiguration the glory of God in front of us the bridge to God open to us, and the cost that God paid for us. So follow along as I read chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death 
until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And, they, uh, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. This is God's word. So let's jump right in and look at the glory of God in front of us. So verse 1 starts uh, the chapter with Jesus saying, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Jesus is saying to the disciples, and and maybe even possibly a larger crowd, that before some here die, they will witness God's kingdom come in power. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, commentators offer a few interpretations. One being that Mark was using this quote by Jesus to set up our story today, that the witnessing of the coming kingdom and power was when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured in glory before them. Others suggest the kingdom coming in power is the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Others believe it's when the Holy Spirit came upon the church at Pentecost, and and still others believe Jesus is referring to his second coming when he returns to judge the living and the dead and bring the fullness of his kingdom with him. And so we're not exactly sure, but I believe the first understanding is best. That Mark was showing that Jesus was speaking of Peter, James, and John getting a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, a peek at his coming kingdom in power through Jesus' transfiguration before them. So let's be honest. This story on the surface, sort of weird. Jesus takes three of his disciples to a mountain, and it says he's transfigured in front of them. And so that word is metamorpho which, you know, sounds familiar. It's the word we get metamorphosis, metamorphosis from. It means to change in appearance. So he, he metamorphoses into this blindingly white radiance. And then Moses and Elijah, Old Testament saints, appear there with him, and they have a conversation together. Then Peter, classic Peter, <laughs> decides saying something in foolishness is better than being quiet in wisdom, offers to make these tense. The Hebrew word there is skene, which in other versions of the Bible is translated tabernacle. He says, let's make three tabernacles to worship and deal with the intensity and terror of the moment. Then a cloud descends, and after Peter's voice, another voice, this one from heaven, that says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In other words, Peter, stop talking. 
and listen. And then the cloud breaks, the radiant glow dims, the saints disappear, and only Jesus and the disciples are left. And as they come down from this experience, heads twirling and hearts racing, Jesus tells the three, don't say anything about this until he has risen from the dead. And they're left a little confused. And it's okay to admit that this is like a strange story. Like, why? Why did Jesus do this? Why did he invite the three to witness it? And what difference does it make to us today? Well, first, we see that very intentionally, this transfiguration was Jesus showing that he is the glory of God in front of them, in front of us. And this is where we start to see like those true, real Easter eggs of the story. Uh, So the Gospel of Mark was written very purposefully to ask and to answer the question, who is Jesus? With the answer being, Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, it's right there in the opening line of Mark's Gospel, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so throughout Mark's Gospel, he is sharing what's thought to be Peter's firsthand experience with Jesus, showing through the stories and teachings and miracles and life of Jesus that he indeed is the Son of God. And one of those most convincing stories is the transfiguration. Because more than just Jesus changing into like a bright costume and having some chat with old friends, this was another proof that Jesus was more than just a man more than just a teacher or a prophet or just another way to God, but that he is the very presence of God with us. The fulfillment of every hint and image and glimpse of God throughout history, Jesus is the glory of the living God in front of us. We start to see that in verse 2. When Mark writes that Jesus took the disciples and led them up a high mountain by themselves. The mountain setting was purposeful. God showcasing his glory on the mountaintop here was not the first time he had done that. It points back to the story in Exodus chapter 24, where God led Moses to the mountaintop. It says, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for there, the people's instruction." Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So there we have Moses on the mountaintop with the Lord, covered in a cloud, standing in the presence of the glory of God. But here in Mark, we have Jesus on the mountaintop, covered in a cloud, standing as the presence of the glory of the Lord. And we can see in the story of Elijah from 1 Kings chapter 18, if you remember when he's on the top of Mount Carmel in the famous battle of the gods, where Elijah stood as the prophet of the true God, Yahweh, against the 450 prophets of the false god, Baal. And in a test to see which god was real, two altars were made, 
set with two sacrificial bulls, and each side would call to their God to see who would come in power and accept the sacrifice. So the prophets of Baal go first, if you remember. And after weeping and wailing and even cutting themselves to evoke Baal's response, nothing. And then it was Elijah's turn. And he soaks the altars, drenching them with water. And he calls out to the true God, and the fire of the Lord fell down and not only consumed the bull, but the stones and the wood and the water as well. The glory of the true God shown in the demonstration of his power on a mountaintop. Moses and Elijah in their stories witnessed glimpses of God's glory on their mountaintops, but the three disciples here witnessed something different. Jesus was not just another Moses or another Elijah. He was something far greater. Late pastor Tim Keller says it this way of this passage. But Jesus produces the unsurpassable glory of God. It emanates from him. Jesus does not point to the glory of God as Elijah, Moses, and every other prophet has done. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. The author of the book of Hebrews puts it like this. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Where Moses and Elijah stood in the presence of God's glory, Jesus stands as the presence of God's glory. So what were Peter, James, and John encountering on that mountainside? Well, like we said, the very glory of God, the glory of God in front of them, in front of us, in Jesus himself. And with Moses and Elijah there, God is saying that everything, every page of history, every verse of the Old Testament, the entire story of God is pointing to Jesus. And in case there was any doubt, a voice from heaven cries out saying, this is is my beloved son. Listen to him. Not another prophet, not another teacher, or another way among many. This is my son. This is my glory. So let's go back to our story again and reread it starting in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make Three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So again, I want you to imagine being in that moment, being on that mountainside, witnessing the, the transfiguration of Jesus before your eyes, having a front row seat to divine majesty. Let's be clear, the experience here of seeing Jesus' transfiguration would make the greatness of the Eras tour look like a puppet show by comparison. And if you didn't understand what I just said, that was my second Taylor Swift reference this morning. 
and I'm done for the year. <laughs> but in that moment, witnessing that glory, what would you do? And I know it's easy to pick on Peter, but we wouldn't have handled it any better. What does he do in that moment? So standing before him and the other disciples was Jesus in stupendous glory, emanating the light of divine perfection, the radiance of infinite worth, the power and glory of a holy God. And Peter, in awe and terror and worship, says, let's make some tents. Why did he say that? Because in that moment, the gap was exposed. The gap between Jesus' transcendent greatness and Peter's unworthy weakness. The gap between Jesus' glorious worth and Peter's sinful shame. The gap was, <clears throat> excuse me, was the gap between the divine and the human. And Peter felt it. And so in an effort to bridge the gap, he offers to make tents, or as we mentioned, that word can be translated tabernacles. Why would Peter offer to make tabernacles? Because tabernacles are bridges. Bridges to cross the gap between God and man, divinity and humanity, the holy and the unholy. And Peter knew in that moment, witnessing the transfiguration glory of Jesus, he needed a tabernacle, a bridge to stand before God's glories. But as we'll see, Peter needed a greater bridge, the bridge that was standing before him. So to understand this, we actually need to know like, what the tabernacle in the Old Testament was for. So if you remember the story of Exodus, where God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt to the freedom of the promised land. But even though that they were free from Egypt, they were not free from the slavery of their own sin. So God commanded them to build a tabernacle amidst them in their camp. And this tabernacle was a, was a holy place of worship where only the priest would go to meet with God and make sacrifices to atone for the sins of the unholy people. The tabernacle and the priest would follow specific instructions to purify and cleanse them, to make them able to meet with the holy God. So the tabernacle was where the priest would be the mediator between God and man, the divine and humanity, the holy and the unholy, the priest in the tabernacle was a bridge for humanity to cross the gap to the divine. And that's the common human longing. A longing inside of us to bridge the gap between where we are in our humanity, our unworthiness, our guilt, our shame, and where we long to be in the presence of glory. We long for the presence of the divine, to bask in the beauty and glory of God where we swim in the waters of his love, where our lives rest in being enough, where our weakness, our incompleteness, our frailty and our guilt is swept away and replaced by strength, security, wholeness, and worthiness. Again, where our lives are enough, we long for a bridge over that gap. That's why there are literal temples and literal tabernacles throughout history and in every culture around the world today, places where frail humans long to bridge the gap to God, 
through offering sacrifices and doing religious works and deeds, hoping to do enough and be enough to satisfy the gods and clear the gap. But it's also what's happening at the tabernacles of Wall Street, office buildings, academia, the gym, governments, social media feeds, Hollywood, everywhere we're trying to overcome that gap inside us, trying to prove ourselves, be enough, work off our guilt, and satisfy the gods of culture, to be worthy to be in the presence of glory. We are tabernacle builders. We long for the bridge. And Peter felt that. In that moment, he felt that gap between his humanity and Jesus' divinity, between his unworthiness and Jesus' glory. And his best answer, we need another tabernacle, another bridge, something to cross the gap. And what does God say? Peter, stop talking. You don't need another tabernacle. You need to listen to the tabernacle that's right in front of you. My son, he is the true tabernacle. He is your bridge. He is the way you cross that gap. He is your tabernacle and he is your mediator. The bridge between God and man isn't in your religious efforts, Peter. Your good deeds, your sacrifices, your attempts to prove yourself, your awards and accolades and accomplishments. Your bridge, Peter, isn't found in you. The bridge between God and man is the God-man, Jesus, my son. Listen to him. He is the bridge to God opened for us. So commentators have noted that when God says here, like, this is my beloved son, listen to him, and the disciples look up and they see that no one but Jesus is left, God is saying, Moses can't fill your gap Doing the law can't fill your gap. Elijah can't fill your gap, and performing like great works of miracles can't fill your gap. No one and nothing can fill your gap. Only my son can. Only Jesus. He alone is the tabernacle. He alone is the bridge. He alone is the mediator between God and man. The Apostle Paul would make that very clear when the Holy Spirit spoke through him as he wrote, For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. In the transfiguration, friends, Jesus wasn't simply showing the disciples that he is the glory of God in front of them, but that he is the bridge to God open before them. He was the true tabernacle that Peter needed and that we need too. Again, Jesus is God's glory in front of us. He is the bridge to God open to us. But it begs the question, how? How is Jesus the bridge? How is he the true tabernacle and mediator? So our last point today answers that question. As we see in this transfiguration story, the cost that God paid for us, the cost to bridge that gap and ransom us back to God. So we've acknowledged that this is a a bit of a strange story, right? 
And part of that can be the way that our encounter kind of concludes here. So after this otherworldly glimpse into Jesus' glory, on the way down the mountain, Jesus tells the disciples not to tell anyone what happened until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And of course, this doesn't provide them any clarity, but leaves them actually with more questions. But again, why? Why would Jesus show them this picture of glory and then tell them not to tell anyone again? Why show this to them at all? Because only by seeing the greatness of Jesus on the mountainside will they understand the depth of his love for them on the cross. That the cost the Son of God would pay for our salvation and give us our glory would be to sacrifice his own glory. In other words, the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain shows his worth to us. But the disfiguration of Jesus on the cross shows us our worth to him. And let me explain that. We see it when we hold in our mind the simultaneous images. First, of our glorious Jesus on the mountaintop, radiant in holy splendor, surrounded in blinding glory, Moses and Elijah conversing with him, the Shekinah glory cloud enveloping them. So intense the image of Jesus' greatness that it evokes the disciples to terrified worship, only to hear the voice of God the Father proclaiming the majesty and authority of his beloved Son. In one image, the exalted, radiant, magnified, splendid, glorious, worthy Son of God lifted up on the mountainside. And the other image is that same Jesus shortly after, sweating blood in the garden, falsely arrested, wrongly condemned, mocked and maligned, stripped naked, torn apart, Beaten, battered, spit upon, dishonored, belittled, abandoned, abused, whipped, forsaken, and executed as a criminal. Our Jesus, the Son of God, lifted up on the mountainside in his glory to lift it up on a cross bearing our shame. Why? Because that's what it took to bridge the gap. That's what it took to set us free. That's what it took to ransom us back from sin and death. That gap, what keeps us from God and glory is our sin. And what is our sin? It's our attempt to live our lives as our own God, without God. I got this on my own. I call the shots. I can bridge the gap myself. I don't really need you, God, and I don't want you. We are running from God rebelling against God, and ultimately trying to replace God. Trying to earn God's glory in ourselves, and that makes the gap only grow. So then what is our hope? If our self-centered attempts at glory only broaden the gap, we need the once-for-all bridge, the once-for-all mediator, the once-for-all sacrifice we need Jesus. And we need the cross. Only in Jesus and the cross do we find the hope for glory we are desperate for. Because the only bridge 
between God and man is the God-man, Jesus. God in flesh, the sinless Lamb of God, the glorious one, worthy of all honor and praise, the perfect record of obedience, a life of pure holiness, who let go of his glory, let go of his honor, let go of his comfort, let go of his deserved reward to willingly take up our shame, our guilt, our dishonor, our self-centered debt of sin against God. He took up our running and rebelling and replacing of God. He took our sin and shame on the cross. And on that cross, he paid our sin, our debt of sin in full. He is the mediator. He is the sacrifice. He is the bridge. He became sin so we could become righteous. He was treated as guilty so we could be forgiven. He let go of his glory and took our sin so we could give him our sin and take upon his glory. The gap of sin separating us from God, the God we were made for, destroyed by Jesus on the cross. And the seal of his victory was that promise that he made to the disciples on the way down the mountain. You remember? That he would rise again. The promise that sin and death are defeated, that the bridge is complete, our eternal life is secure because he lives. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Friends, this is the truth that if we come to grips with it, changes everything. So because of that, I want us to sit in it a little bit more. We need to consider what it costs Jesus to save us, the price God paid for us. Because only then will we understand the depth of his love for us and his love changes everything. So let's contra contrast what we see in our story today in the glorious transfiguration to what we see in the horrors of the cross that Jesus was willing to do. On the cross, Jesus traded being clothed in radiant glory for being stripped naked in shame. He traded a glowing righteousness for the darkness of our sin. He traded an exalted body for torn flesh. He traded a community of friends together for abandonment alone. He traded his father's assuring voice for his father's forsaking silence. He traded the cloud of Shekinah glory for the shouts of mocking scorn. He traded his glory for our sin that we could trade our sin for his glory. Only in Jesus, only in the cross. I was having, uh, I was hanging out with, with a buddy of mine who's exploring Jesus, and he asked me this next question. But why? Why would Jesus, why would God the Son pay that unbearable cost to save the undeserved? And the answer, because he loves us.
For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, friends, the story is about Jesus. It's about his glory and his greatness. But don't lose in the story of the transfiguration how Jesus must feel about you and me. How valuable you and I are to him. That the cost it took to save us, he gladly paid for what he gained from it. You and me. Because again, the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain shows his worth to us. But the disfiguration of Jesus on the cross shows us our worth to him. And friends, if, if Jesus was willing to lay down everything, lay down his divine glory for us, what are you still not worth laying down for him? What are you holding on to? Lay down your pride. Lay down your anger. Lay down your control. Lay down your plans. Lay down your attempts to run your life. Lay down your old life and take up your new life in him. Let Jesus be your salvation. Let Jesus be your once and final bridge to God. So how do we do that? How do we receive this gift of God's grace in Jesus? We just believe. You just trust. You let go of yourself and take a hold of Jesus. Again, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And if you want the salvation he alone offers, then believe this. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So this week I was uh, reminded by one of our CBC members, Philip Martin, uh, of a beautiful moment uh, in the C.S. Lewis uh, books, The Chronicles of Narnia. So we talked about Lord of the Rings. We've got to talk about Narnia. Uh, but if you're not familiar with The Chronicles of Narnia, it's an allegory. It's a story about Christianity. And the central figure is Aslan the Lion, who is the Christ figure of the story. It's incredibly beautiful. But the narrative centers around these children who go on an adventure to discover Aslan and develop a dear, deep relationship with him along the way. But in the book Prince Caspian, after some time away from Aslan, one of the children, Lucy, reunites with him, and this is what it says in their exchange together. Aslan says, welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger well, that is because you are older, little one, answered he. Well, not because you are. No, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. 
See, Aslan seemed bigger to Lucy, not because he had changed, but because she had. The longer she knew him, the deeper she would see his greatness. Friends, C.S. Lewis was telling us about Jesus. Getting below the surface, diving deeper into the wonder and awe of Jesus, the Son of God. The more we come to know him, the bigger he seems. Not because he is changing, but because he is changing us to see him more fully. This encounter with Jesus and the transfiguration is strange, but it's strangely beautiful. It helps us to see how big our Jesus really is. Big enough to be the glory of God in front of us. Big enough to be the bridge to God opened for us. And big enough to pay the cost it took to save us. So I'm going to invite the worship band to to make their way up here. And uh, As they come up here, I want us to close in something that we don't normally do, but I just want us to sit in Jesus's bigness. Sit in holding the the glory of the transfiguration and the brutality of the cross together. And by the Spirit of God, you know, ask that he takes this information from our heads and moves it into our hearts. And I don't know where you are with Jesus. I don't know how big Jesus is to you. But wherever you are, man, let's pray for each other, that God would make him bigger to us than he is right now, wherever he is that he would make Jesus bigger to us than he is right now. So we're going to take a few moments and let God speak to our hearts. And you can sit there, you can pray, you can just dwell on those pictures of the reality of the greatness of Jesus and what he was willing to go through to give us glory. And we'll take a few moments and with just some music praying, but maybe, maybe you're seeing a bigger Jesus right now than you've ever seen before. And you need to take a step of faith with him, whatever that means. Maybe it's trusting him for the first time, giving yourself to Jesus for the first time. Or maybe there's something you've been holding on to that you said, Jesus, I can't trust you with this yet. And you give it to him now. And you walk in faith and obedience. So let's just take a few moments, you with Jesus, and I'll come back and close our time in prayer just a little bit. So take some time with Jesus right now. Hebrews was right. Jesus, you are the radiance of God's glory in the exact 
Jesus, teach me. And Jesus, we confess that this story is not about us. It's about you. So Lord, draw us in to see you as big and great as you truly are, that you are our King and Savior. You are the glorious one on the mountainside. You are our suffering King who redeemed us by the cross. You are the risen, resurrected Savior of the world. And you are the coming King who will bring us into glory. And until that day, Lord, let us live for the name and greatness of the name above all names. Our Lord and Savior, our ransom, 